Welcome everyone, this is a May edition of Libby's Eye and this month we, we're dipping into uh, Glasgow Festivals for Indie Meeting. They invited Craig Dale and Bill Johnson to talk about their book called All of Our Futures. It's about the challenges and the opportunities of Scotland's population and we have an ageing population. Movie's Eye Show is hosted by Fiona McGregor and Marlene Halliday from Independence Live Media. This is the podcast edition for Scottish Independence Podcasts. Bill and Craig do a bit of an introduction to the book about uh, why they've, you know, why they thought about it, why they wrote it, and then there's a pretty good discussion, as always, I think, with that group. We sort of asked them, like, well, why did you write the book? And there is the population, the demographics of the population. What do we do about it? Because it does bring forward issues like, well, well, about pensions and about social care and older people's rights. But they really make a strong point that this isn't just something that's a concern for those of us who are in that ageing group, but it's actually something that concerns everyone in the population. And and it's it's fascinating talking about ageing better, you know, needing a, a need for a well-being based economy rather than one that's just about you know GDP. And they also talk about um, <laughs> they called it a lifetime MOT. Yes, that was the one bit I wasn't very sold on, I have to say. Well, well I thought it was interesting because, you know, it's not, I mean, apparently it's about health, but, you know, it was also about, um, well, people were carrying on working longer. Mm. And, and I mean, even after you, after people retire, for example, I can think of a few examples of this. It's not, people are carrying on being very active in their community. That's what I really liked about it. I was at the meeting. In fact, I even asked a question, but there was an element of positivity about, you know, the fact we're aging is actually a success story, you know, which is one yeah. thing. It was quite a range of ages, I would say, at that meeting. And I don't think any of us were thinking we were in our dotage in bath chairs. Yeah. We were all actively out there and engaged. And sometimes there's an element of, I don't even know if it's as strong as discrimination, but it's just kind of an assumption and stereotypes that, that are very negative about aging yeah. and I yeah. must say I'm having more fun now than I think I've ever had at any stage of my life. <laughs> so, yeah and, uh, and, and you know there's just a whole there's just a whole thing about bringing life experience into a community for the benefit mm-hmm. of that community and you know not in a kind of cheesy way and certainly not to oh it was better in the old days. Well oh, actually well, I, I must yeah. admit I, I do that a bit you know I listen to the TV news and I go well it didn't used to be like that. But, you know, actually, just in a very positive way, you've got a lot of life experience. You've got a lot of experiences, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's bringing up a family or, you know, holding down a job and uh, seeing that as a positive way. And I think someone asked that question at the end, doesn't they? They sort of make a comparison with um, with Germany, where groups of older people are actually very positive and listen yeah. to pressure groups for their government. We'll play the recording now of the Pensioners for Indie meeting with Craig DL and Bill Johnson. And then Marlene and I'll come back for a little more chat. Kind of the overview to the book. I mean, one of the reasons we wrote it was we thought there were issues to do with older people in Scottish society and politics. And we came to be, to realise that what we were really talking about was uh, population demographics. 
demographic aging. And we kept moving between the, the two poles, the scientific, social science side of things, and the reality of, of getting older in Scotland. So it's kind of a book that's about age. How do we think about age? Aging, you know, the, the process and how we think about that process. Uh, and particularly, probably more obviously, a lot of folk older people's issues, whether that's pensions or, or social care or health or, or whatever. And a particular one that we focused on was the idea of older people's rights. But we weren't confining ourselves to simply dealing with the problem of the old people, which is one of the reasons why we use the title All of Our Futures, because the population of Scotland is, is everybody's business. I mean, I often say to people in talks like this that say, if Scotland were to become independent, then on midnights of the appointed day, one minute past, Scotland would have its own population. And whether we'd sorted out currency or the future of the monarchy or the constitution or any one of the many other issues that people talk about, we'd have a population. It would have a size, a shape, and it would have future projections. And that wouldn't be changed by the simple act of voting to be independent. So population aging is a big issue the independence movement, uh, over and above specific things that might come out for, uh, for older people. Demographics, usually population demographics, I think, are seen as a kind of geeky thing. That's the specialists who hide behind the government, who are away in offices as civil servants uh, or specialists, and who are looking at the size of the population, the way it's growing, changing, etc. And we discuss it in good detail in the book. But it does tend to you know, not really intrude into public debate nearly as much as it should. In some areas, it's dead obvious, and we keep getting told we're getting older. And we're often told also that this is a problem. And the problem is that it's always these old people who need to be fed, watered, and looked after, etc. And that's a terrible drain on the lives of the younger people. The fact that it is a kind of technical thing means it leaves the way clear to the kind of misrepresentations of exemplified there, setting older people up to be the fall guys for for various failings of the economy uh, or, or social policy or whatever. One of the things that we'll talk about, and Craig will say a lot more about this, is the idea of the old age dependency ratio, that the old depend on the young, typically the, the working age young people who are keeping the old people alive almost. Uh, it is far from the truth, and we'll try and explain a bit more as we go along. Also, it tends to restrict the idea of what a life stage is. It's a very simple thing. You've got birth to school age, school age to working age, working age to retirement, and then the next thing you know, you're in the coffin. Uh, and that's a very simplistic idea of the stages people's lives go through. Uh, and that's changed a lot, I think, in my lifetime. People are living longer. Uh, they're living longer in retirement. They're wanting to do more different things. Jobs have changed, etc. And that's only going to go on for the, the people who are younger than I am coming behind us. So a couple of things that we thought uh, fitted importantly very well with the, the, the straightforward stats of the uh, demographic profiles. Uh, you kind of got to say to yourself, well, what's, what's the driver there? What's the engine for these things apart from births and deaths? And we thought that neoliberalism and ageism were two of the key drivers. The neoliberal political economy, which uh, I think more and more people are comfortable with that term than it used to be, but I think more and more people are comfortable with the idea that since Thatcher and Reagan on, the politics and the economy of Britain, America, Europe, is more and more dominated by the notion that everything's a market. 
uh, anything and everything can be a market up to and including social care for older people, uh, for the disabled and so forth. And you start to get this mentality that unless there's a private business profiting uh, from social care, then it doesn't really deserve to be, uh, to be considered. And uh, people who can't afford to pay for top-rated services just have to put up with whatever's left at the end of the chancellor's budget or whatever. And that's had some terrible effects, as we saw in the, uh, the, the pandemic. And it's also very easy in that kind of neoliberal dog-eat-dog way of looking at things. They put older people in against younger people. And not only in the world of retirement, but in the world of work. So it's very easy to turn around and say, well, these old people are in the way. They're not quick enough on the uptake when it comes to, say, technology or something like that. Uh, and they're just really a pain in the arse. Uh, and the young people should be rightly fed up with them and want to see them out the door as quick as possible. Now, that's a very exaggerated view, but believe me, I've heard that from some of the, uh, the more crass commentators on, on these matters. So we need a different kind of economy, and I think Craig will come into more of that later on when he talks a bit more about common real policies like the well-being economy. In addition to neoliberalism, which you could say was a kind of abstract economic modelling of society, within society, I think you have this phenomenon of ageism, whereby people are potentially discriminated against subject to prejudice and, and so forth in the same way that people have been subjected to racism and then women have been discriminated against all along for, for years now. But ageism is probably the one you hear about least. That doesn't mean nobody's noticed it. It's protected in the Equality Act 2010 in the same way that sex, religion and all the other protected characteristics are. And, you know, it's, it can happen in different ways. It's often a casual thing. If you go back maybe 30, 40 years, People used to make mother-in-law jokes and they used to make uh, gay jokes. Uh, and it was just banter, apparently. And everyone was supposed to put up with it because it was just, it was just casual remarks. Why should anyone take offence? And the same often happens with age. Uh, like the old people are just a bit doddery. We like them well enough in, the, in their own way, but they're kind of besides, besides the point. The indie movement is not immune from ageism. And we certainly heard after 2014 the kind of recrimination that it was the old people that had done it, uh, that the old people had lost the, the vote. And if it hadn't been for them, we'd have been independent the day after the vote. And it's not true. And Craig, again, is, is quite expert on the, the demographics of uh, the independence movement. And I think he may at some point say a bit more, say why that simplistic blame game doesn't really hold up. But I think it is still there. I've heard it from some quite, Prominent people in the Yes movement uh, challenge them on it, and they, they kind of look a bit shamefaced, but they also look a bit bemused as if it's never occurred to them. They're going about the place saying old people are no use. So I think that's something to overcome uh, for any future referendum. Uh, and we'll hopefully come on to that when we come to questions and answers. I'd very much like to hear from yourselves what you think about some of these issues. Just a quick spin, uh, an example of, of ageism in, in work. It's not just casual remarks and stuff. People do find themselves being discriminated against in work. There can be a sense in a workplace that really the old people ought to go and that we don't really need to bother uh, anything about changing the, the shape of the workplace to accommodate them and what have you. That doesn't hold up in the face of uh, equality legislation. Everyone in a workplace should have equal access to training, development, etc. Uh, and that applies to, to aged 
uh, as well as it does to gender uh, or sexuality or whatever. And we need to have a situation where employers are actually sitting down and, and working these things out with their staff, uh, their managers and their trade unions. The, the reality is of, uh, there's no uh, default retirement age now, so people can stay on and work for really quite a long time if they want to. And as the state pension age goes up, you'll get more and more people still in work. Uh, so the idea of older workers is quite a big deal, I think, and it's been underlined by the, uh, the pandemic. In last year, the year before, Rishi Sunak was going on endlessly about the recession uh, and how it was going to affect young people. And then you got the surprise, surprise, the immediate policy came out about apprenticeships. I and mean, I've heard that story so many times in my lifetime, I can do it for them. But what was the truth of the matter which came out from bodies like uh, Centre for Aging Better uh, and indeed the uh, Office for Statistics in the UK showed quite clearly that older workers in their 50s were just as prone to, to be pushed out in jobs uh, as the young and were much less likely to get back into work. Whereas younger people had still had time to, to catch and get back into work, the older people didn't. So you're looking at folk in their 50s maybe been put out of work, and where did they go until they collect the old age pension? So there's a big issue there. With, I wouldn't say too much about pensions. I just want to flag it up at this stage. I, it's a truism that our state pension in the UK is, is one of the worst in Europe. And I must admit, I was listening to all the talk about the uh, leaving Europe back in 2016. I don't think I heard Nigel Farage or anyone saying, leave the EU and your pensions will travel overnight. There's no commitment that uh, leaving the EU is going to be a boon for pensioners. It might have been a boon for Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and business people like that, but it certainly wasn't going to do pensioners much good. And just as uh, the workplace is affected by ageism and the neoliberal market, so is housing. Uh, I mean, housing is, should be pretty clear to everybody now is a developer's paradise. It's, it's really a buyer's dream that you can sell houses and buy houses and make amazing amounts of money uh, without having to bother overly much about people's actual needs. Now, need is often described about uh, in terms of younger people can't get onto the housing ladder. Older people have needs as well. Often their houses are as old as they are. They're not up to current standards of energy efficiency and so forth. They may need uh, repairs, they may need to be modified as people's age has made it less easy for them to use staircases, etc. There is a big, big issue uh, around housing and there's a full chapter on it in the book that looks at a lot of practical things that we think the Scottish Government could be doing in the current Parliament. So the last one I'll talk about for the moment is healthcare. Our take on it is to present it as healthy ageing. So it's not simply a case of rapid response A&E type reactions to people becoming ill very suddenly or getting injured. It's actually an ongoing idea that the population should age in a healthy way. And if you remember, the better off you are, the longer you're likely to live and the healthier you're likely to be. The less well off you are, the less life expectancy you can have. And so people we heard about during the pandemic who had comorbidities, the charming phrase they used, often you found a correlation between those people and long-term inequality in income, education, housing, work, etc., etc. So healthy ageing is about medical issues, certainly, but it's social as well. In the pandemic, 
which was shoving unhealthy older people into care homes. No doubt the people who did not did it were the best one in the world and uh, the care that people got was as good as they could get. But nonetheless, they were putting them into care homes being run as a private business, often owned. Eventually, if you follow the chains down the, in the lines, you found in big American or other international equity companies who were profiting. One of the things that uh, we've thought about, and I think both Craig and I would like to hear your views on it, a long-term uh, MOT for health uh, initially, but for other things, and the idea being that uh, at various points in your life, people could sit down and take stock uh, about whether it was their, their financial future, their health future, what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives, because their lives were going to be longer. Within the, the health MOT in Scotland, Scottish NHS does do quite a lot of preventative um, healthcare and preventative screening for cancer, for instance. But a lot of it is quite fragmented. You're siloed into a particular box because of a particular demographic and you'll be taken in to look at this, this one screen for this one thing. Down in England, with NHS England, they do have a, a more comprehensive health MOT where you can be brought in at a certain life stage and, and given a, a more general scan and check up to, and chat about your, about your potential health, health issues as you come up. And we've been thinking in the book about trying to expand on about bringing some of that into the, the, the Scottish NHS. We also want to see this idea of a preventative MOT extended to other aspects of life. You may already have had one in your working lives as part of a financial MOT. Are you saving enough in your pension for a, for a comfortable retirement? It tends to be the limit of it. But why can we not look at your workplace and your job if you are potentially facing um, health issues or just as you're generally slowing down as you get older, is there something you can do in your workplace and that your employer can help you do to adapt your work to make it easier for you to continue working? Or can your job change somewhat to make it easier for you to stay uh, with that employer? Now, I do want to be put a note of caution on that because I did speak to someone uh, as part of the research of the book and what they said actually really seared into my brain and they worked in healthcare and they talked about frontline healthcare professionals who have a very physical, physically demanding job. And they were finding some people getting taken off that frontline job and put into a backroom office and doing administrative work. That kept them working. That sudden shift from being with people and helping people directly to be to being stuck in a cupboard and shuffling paperwork. The person I was talking to described that as psychologically devastating on the employee. So this is something we do need to be wary about. You can't just switch someone from an active and rewarding job to a sedentary and boring one. Um, it's certainly not without their consent. But that principle of an MOT can go beyond workplace as well. It could go into your lifestyle. We could be looking at your house. In that chapter on housing, we talked about the need for houses to be designed in a way that is easier for them to be adapted if you have changing physical needs. That could be through age, it could be through injury, it could be through any other reason. It's a major challenge right now for a lot of modern houses to even put in things like stair lifts because the houses are, are built to be so small to cram as many houses onto an estate so that the developer can make more profit that it becomes very difficult to build these adaptations in later. So we might need to think about how these houses can be adapted. And if for some reason they can't, we then need to have to think about different ways of addressing someone's housing needs. 
we're calling for a guaranteed right to stay within a community, for instance. If your house simply becomes inadequate to your needs, the council should be able to provide you a social house within the same community, keeping your same social contacts, but a house that, is, that better suits your need. The core principle in all of these is that really we have to start applying a strategic and preventative view towards our own ageing. And it goes for me as much as it goes for anyone else in this room today, because as the title of the book says, this is all of our futures. I want to highlight one of the chapters, because I think this is the chapter that a lot of people have been asking me about when we've been talking about the book, and that is the, 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 the chapter on pensions. So I want to very briefly cover that. The background of this is that the UK's welfare system is, is simply broken. At best, it is meagre. It's one of the least generous in the developed world. But we've also seen bodies such as the United Nations say that the UK's welfare system is outright punitive. You know, people are sanctioned, people are, are, are directly harmed by the meagerness of those benefits, and, and people have died as a result of the austerity of the last decade and a half. If we look forward to an independent Scotland, we have to start thinking now about how we can build a social security system, and we use that term deliberately, not welfare, not benefits, but social security, and build that so that it is worthy of the name. A core aspect of that is going to be pensions. So we have that oft-quoted factoid that the UK state pension is the lowest in the OECD. And that is true. The, the, the state pension covers just 29% of an average pensioner's income. But this headline does miss out a huge chunk of pension politics. Pensions aren't quite as simple as just looking at the state pension. And uh, our, our book tries to go through all the other aspects of that as well. For instance, we have private pensions, we have occupational pensions, and we also have what they call capital investment. So your private savings, but also the savings you build up from going down that housing ladder route of buying a house, seeing its value inflate, then selling it just as you retire, downsizing and, and reaping the rewards. In a lot of countries, much more emphasis is placed on the state pension. In the UK, there has been much more emphasis on private pensions and on that capital investment. For an average pensioner, only about 50% of their income comes from the state pension. In many countries, um, it can be over 90%. And the reason that this is important is that this is just talking about the average pensioner. Around one in three pensioners in the UK are solely reliant on the state pension. They don't have the benefit of having private savings or a private pension or a house they can sell. And even those with private pensions in the UK, around two in five have saved less than £5,000. In about 16 of the 36 OECD countries, public pensions make up about 90% of retirement income. And this has an impact on, on the UK by placing the emphasis on the private sector and all the risks that that comes with. We have seen a rise in pensioner poverty in the UK, and pensioner poverty in the UK is above the OECD average. Countries like Denmark and the Netherlands, pensioner poverty rates are about 3%. In the UK, it's above 15%. Now, we talked a bit earlier about that idea of the old age dependency ratio, that our pensioners are dependent on the workers of today. And you, when you grow older and retire, you'll be dependent on the workers of tomorrow. It is an entirely flawed metric based on a false premise. But it is one that a lot of pension politics is based on. If we look at the, the, the changes that the UK has made to pension politics, they suddenly make sense if all you're looking at is this old age dependency ratio. The dependency ratio was projected if pension policies had not changed 
the dependency ratio was set to rise from about 360 pensioners per thousand workers just now to over over 400 pensioners per thousand workers. But then the UK put up the retirement age and it introduced the changes to the affected WASPy women. And if all you're looking at is the old age dependency ratio, those changes worked. They stabilised that ratio. Now, I'm not defending those policies, but those who are only looking at that number, that data point, would say this worked. And it encouraged others, like Ian Duncan Smith's think tank, the Centre for Social Justice, to propose setting state retirement age to 75 by 2035. And that would push the, the OADR down to record low levels. I checked up my personal life expectancy not that long ago. For, for, for a, a West of Scotland male born in the year I was born, my life expectancy is just under 70. So <laughs> a state retirement of 75 does not look particularly attractive to me. It's also, this ratio is based on, a, on the false premise that my income is sufficient to pay for pensioners. Wages for decades have been suppressed. They have flatlined. But we have also seen the rise of automation and the rise of rentier capitalism and other changes that have seen money from productivity gains go not to workers' wages, but to shareholders and capital gains. And that rise of capital gains is not being reflected in the pension affordability, quote-unquote. So when you start looking at all those aspects, the OADR just completely falls apart and we think it should be abandoned. There have been suggestions of what Scotland could do to tweak the state pension to, to, to improve it. But things like tweaking retirement age or boosting immigration rates, even boosting worker wages, they all may have social benefits and they may, may be worth looking at. But ultimately, they hit the same flaw in that old age dependency ratio. They also don't really look at the severe gap in Scotland between life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. Your average person in Scotland will expect to live till age 72, but their health starts declining at around 60, eight years before the state retirement age for well, someone my age. So what we are calling for is for measures like a universal basic income to replace the state pension. Another advantage of this would, it would be to soften the cliff edge of retirement. I, I've known people who have been avid workers all of their lives They've got to that final Friday and the final week. They have retired. They have become a pensioner. And they have a great weekend. And they wake up on the Monday. What do I do with my life? That psychological shift can be very damaging to a lot of people. So what we are calling for is a universal basic income that would replace a lot of benefits, a lot of welfare in the UK, and would replace the state pension, and would allow you, as you approach retirement age, to do things like ramp down your work, to change the way you work, and to shift that argument away from social security being paid for by workers. We're also calling for that link between national insurance you know, paying for state pensions to be broken so that taxes like taxes on carbon, wealth, land, rent-seeking capitalism, other productivity gains can be better seen to be providing for the social security and the social benefit of everybody in Scotland, including through a state pension. Now, if we look at private pensions... Historically, the UK has suffered very low pension enrolment. A lot of people just couldn't afford to save based on their, their suppressed wages. And the UK historically had very high fees involved in its, in its private pension. And they would be significant, even just a, you know half a percent or a percent extra in the annual fees for managing your pension could eat 20, 30% of your total pot by the time you came to retirement. Countries like Denmark 
have been good competitors at capping fees at quite a low level. And consequently, even someone in Denmark who has the same wage as someone in the UK ends up with a higher pension. Now, the UK has improved recently. There has been things like auto-enrollment, and there have been caps on annual fees, but we still have problems with, quite frankly, low wages. You know, you, you, if, if you can't afford to live on, on the, the wage you're getting, you certainly can't afford to save from it. We also have a big problem with very fragmented careers. The, the job for life, where you sit, sat within a company, you worked within that company your whole life, then you, then you retired with a, a final salary pension, that is gone. What happens now is we have very fragmented careers with multiple pension pots split over m- multiple companies. The average British person will retire with 11 different private pensions split across six different employers. And that's very difficult to keep track of. I already have three different private pensions. <laughs> I'm struggling to keep track of it. I know people who have got to retirement and are trying to scrabble around looking for all those little pots that they maybe not thought about for for decades. There's also still a big problem in the UK with transfer fees. You know, taking your pension from one pot and then consolidating them into into maybe a higher earning pot elsewhere. But even if we fix all of that, we go back to that problem of the UK having much more emphasis on the private sector. Look at COVID, look at the financial crash, look at the next financial disruption that will come in years or decades to come. What happens if you are just a few years from retirement and a financial crisis or a pandemic or a war or whatever wipes out your pension pot and you have no time to save up and recover from that? That's the risk we are taking individually by pushing our our responsibilities onto the private sector. Whereas if we had much more of a public-led state pension emphasis, then that risk is still present, but it's now borne by the whole of society collectively rather than on the shoulders of us as individuals who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. We do have some recommendations for improving the private sector. You might have heard of uh, the pension dashboard idea. It's been floated by both the Scottish government and the UK government. Boris Johnson is surprisingly keen on it, and it's actually a good idea. This is one where you would be able to log into all of your different pension pots on one website and see them all in one place. Maybe be able to move them around from from pot to pot quite easily. The big problem with this idea is the, the companies themselves are not playing ball. One pension provider is quite happy to allow you to use a dashboard to see all of the pensions you have with them, but they're not so keen on, the, on you being able to see the pensions with their competitors on the same screen. We are calling for better regulations to make moving pension pots as easy and as cheap as moving bank accounts. And remember, it took until David Cameron who brought in that regulation. So even that, you know, being able to move your bank accounts around cheaply and easily is only a few years old. Probably the biggest reform we're calling for is a publicly owned occupational pension scheme. Countries like Sweden already have these. And the way this would work is... Yes, your employer may already have their own employment, their own occupational pension scheme, but you as an employee going in can, can pay into that if you like, if you like, but could also pay into the public scheme instead at the same terms. So the employer would have to match uh, their, their contribution in the same rates as they do with the, their own scheme. The advantage of this is if you continue to use that public provider, you can take that from employer to employer. So you can end up retiring with just one pot from one place. And the benefit to Scotland is that pension pot could be investing in Scottish public works like the Green New Deal, rather than paying off shareholders or shunting profits into tax havens. 
there is always that question about what happens to your pension at that transition across independence. Uh, and I deal with this in a, a completely separate paper that I wrote for the, the Scottish Independence Convention. The short version is private pensions or contracts between you and your pension firm, they're going to be largely unaffected. If we end up with a new currency, then there will have to be that question over whether you keep paying into that private pension in pound sterling or whether you re-denominate it into the Scottish currency. Almost all financial houses will offer that re-denomination. It just makes good business sense to do it. But those who don't, we're calling for a national a Scottish public retail bank to be founded so that it can step in and offer that transfer and conversion if your bank or your provider won't do it. The state pension, that's worthy of a talk in and of itself. The very, very short version to that is that unless there is an agreement to the contrary, the state pension obligations you have built up as a UK taxpayer, not as a UK citizen, note, not as a UK citizen, not even as a UK resident necessarily, but your national insurance contributions have essentially bought you a right to a UK state pension. The remaining UK after Scotland leaves will likely be a continuing state rather than a completely new state. So it will have those obligations and liabilities still there. So unless there is an agreement to the contrary, the UK will be there. Their obligation to you remains. Will there be an agreement? Good reason to suspect there will be. There are advantages to both Scotland and the rest of the UK to have that agreement. But one thing I would be, would be clear on is that this isn't a game of the UK saying, well, if you leave, we'll cancel your pensions. And then them holding all the cards and all the power. Because it doesn't, it's not quite as simple as that from their view they have their obligations to keep. So conclusion to that is the thing about pension politics is it is difficult. If we start changing policies today, they likely won't affect people for decades to come, which means they won't affect the people making the decisions. A minister making a change to pension politics today is almost certainly not going to be in office by the time that change kicks in. They might not even be alive to be held accountable. Concepts like the, the, the old age dependency ratio actively drive ageism in society and they're based on obsolete models of work and obsolete models of finance. It's easy to overstate how poor the pension system is just by looking at the inadequacy of the state pension, but it is still far from adequate. It is worth having that longer term strategic view of not just pension politics, but social security as a whole, which is why we're calling for things like a publicly owned pension system and a UBI. We should also think about things like housing policy reform, because the housing policy of today is about building up that capital and constantly accumulating value in your assets. Whereas, what should a house be for, if not living in? And I would say to anyone listening to this who is not yet campaigning for Scottish independence, but is considering making threats to pensioners that they will their pensions will be crippled by independence, that is an inhumane argument. It is a very divisive argument, an ageist argument, and it does not help make the case for the union. So thank you for that. Commonweal as an organisation, we're entirely dependent on our donors and our supporters to keep us going. So if you're not already a supporter, please drop into our website and consider giving us a donation. We also have a shop where you can buy various books, but especially 
drop into our shop and consider buying a copy of all of our futures. It costs £10. You can add an optional donation to that if you wish. And all of the profits go towards Com- Commonweal's ongoing policy development and campaigns. Thank you for listening to us, to, to both me and Bill. And I think we're both happy to take some questions. Thank you, Craig, and thank you, Bill. A lot in that and a lot of uh, sensible options with housing, social care, pensions, etc. With independence, we as a country have that opportunity to change it. Is there a political will at the moment to change it? And what would we need to do once we get the vote to influence this, to make sure this sort of thing actually happens? On the political will issue, I'm a bit sceptical of it. I mean, the Scottish Government, and we go into it in more detail in the book, says the right things about older people in age. Uh, they produced a document a couple of years back called uh, Fairer Scotland for Older People. And Scotland's also got uh, a Minister for Older People and Equalities in uh, the form of Christina McKelvey. Now, COVID's got in the way of delivering uh, some of the stuff in the report. So there is scope there for leveraging the, uh, the Scottish Government. My kind of sense is that a lot of what they do around ageing and other things revolves around consultations uh, the writing of nice reports that go on a website, uh, and you're then kind of left dangling a wee bit. I mean, I think the whole issue of age, ageing and older people's rights is still scattered, uh, still fragmented, and still suffers quite a bit from uh, resources and uh, you know delivery being made available. So I think the Scottish government could be approached on the grounds that you're, you're doing not too bad, although after 14 years you could be doing a lot better. It's almost to me as if sometimes the long period of SNP government has been a bit of a hiatus in the way they deal with uh, these the kind of matters we've been talking about. And they really need to, need to up their act. I think they could do a great deal of what we advocate in the book during the current parliament. I mean, we've found that pressure campaigning, you know, just constantly badgering your representatives does bear fruit. So I would encourage you know, everyone here if there's something in the book that particularly want done, send a letter to your MSP and say, why aren't you doing this for me? I think for, for all Bill has said about what the, the Scottish Government has been doing, there is still somewhat of an attitude of, well, this is reserved, so it's not something we need yeah. to think about. So there's not too much in the way of strategic thinking going on at the moment. I mean, I would hope that if the Scottish Government is, is considering independence to be imminent, you know, within the next few years, you should be thinking about those longer-term plans like pensions, which will, in one sense, kick in the day after independence, but in another sense, will continue to impact Scotland for decades after that. So maybe the, the conversation should be starting now. I don't have any insider knowledge of what's going to be in the, the upcoming independence white paper. But if it's not talking about things like this in detailed and strategic terms, if it is falling back on the kind of population OADR statistics that the Sustainable Growth Commission did, for instance, or if it keeps things at a shallow level of, well, we will increase the state pension to X without any understanding of what that means in the greater context, then I'm going to be very disappointed with that document. You mentioned the waspy women, and that's something, you know, that I'm a waspy woman, and somebody who expected to retire at 60, but 
had to wait till 66. So, I mean, I was fortunate that I did have an occupational pension, so I wasn't quite as hard hit. But some women are just in the most horrendous positions because of that, because they didn't get a chance to plan because they weren't notified. My question is, do you think that there's any chance that the, the legal challenges that are going through might result in some compensation for these women? Or do you think that ship has sailed? I'm sceptical, um, to, be, to be honest. I don't, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I can't gainsay a, a, a legal argument ahead of time and who knows what decisions will come up. But I, I don't have a huge amount of hope there. What it did make me realise is if you are going to change pension politics, especially things at pension age, I'm not convinced that you should do it in a way that affects people currently in the workforce at all. It extends the horizon for those changes by decades. We're already talking decades anyway, but people shouldn't have to readjust their life midway through because of the whim of a pension minister. Uh, I think Craig mentioned preventative medicine, um, which... Um, he said we did it quite well in this country. But anyway, the preventative medicine that we do, which is largely scanning for things like um, bowel cancer, breast cancer and cervical cancer, they come with age limits, um, upper age limits. Mm-hmm. If you're 70, um, yeah. you don't get called in for, for, for my mammogram. And cervical yeah. cancer, I think it was something like 60. Bowel cancer also has an age limit. Just as we have seen the, the question of care, come to the fore as a result of the pandemic and the failings that happened during that, then I mean, there is scope now to, to, to look at where else health could improve. Could we see much more in the, the, towards the leading uh, preventative checks? Um, what you've described is it keeps coming up. There's almost a bit of a postcode lottery with GPs and, and services. It always worried me in the pandemic when the delightful Matt Hancock came out uh, with this great idea that uh, there'd be no more of these face-to-face consultations. All we'd done online, we babbled on about technology in a way that suggested you had this scooby how it actually worked as technology. Never mind whether it's the right way to go about healthcare. So I think there's an issue coming out of the recovery uh, to be starting to say to uh, the National Health Service, we're grateful for everything you're doing and we think you should get better funded. Uh, But we do need to have a discussion about how you go about uh, uh, dealing with patients uh, and we don't guard over the phone any GP that can be found in a a network to talk to you as appropriate ways to do kind of local I don't think it is anyway. As you were talking there earlier about um, the idea of somebody who comes to retirement and then they, they have that final weekend and they go, what do I do now? That kind of was me. My vision of what my retirement would be is not at all how it is. And I have to say, it's a wonderful surprise what retirement is like. Um, And it just occurred to me now, sort of five years in, I don't know any old people. I know activists, I know volunteers, I know people who are carers, I know people who are politically engaged. In the same way as we've got a sort of differing narrative in Scotland about welcoming refugees, for example, from what you would see down the road. 
we should be able to do something to shift that narrative about the value of, of our older people. Um, not see us always as a problem, but actually see us as a national resource. I mean, yeah. we've got youth parliament. Could we have a, I don't know, seniors parliament? Well, it's not all about the money, although that's a great enabler. There is something about the, the value that a society places on its older uh, generation. Uh, and I think there is a kind of patronising attitude at one end of the spectrum and uh, straightforward, they're on the scrap heap, they're disposable, they're just like any other old commodity that's worn out, chuck it. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, and I think there is a need, I think it was Desmond Tutu uh, made the point uh, one time, he said, uh, your rights don't diminish with age. And I think a human rights and, and being forceful about the rights of older people is a good kind of basic narrative that you're asking for. So hopefully that's a kind of bit of an answer. To, to the question in, in your point. Thanks. Just wondering whether older people uh, need to have uh, uh, more representation, more of a pressure group. And I gave the example of Die Grauen in Germany, the Greys as they were, that um, uh, were involved in influencing policy for all political parties, not just one particular group, because as we've indicated today, the, the, the issues for older people cover a wide variety of things. It's not just about complaining about the pension. It's covering, um, you know, the perception of people, the fact that our votes are taken for granted, um, uh, health-related issues. And as Fiona indicated, there is a tremendous amount of expertise, you know, as a nation that people can, could call upon. And again, going back to the example in Germany where uh, older people were represented on local, regional, national boards and able to make sure there was uh, no letting up and the focus on a whole variety of different issues. Because we've got groups like Age UK, but they tend to be focused on a particular issue. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether you think that, 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 you know, there needs to be some kind of pressure group. I mean, my response would be yes, I think pension for Indy is, is a good kernel because there's all sorts of uh, groups around there. I, I'm always a bit wary of the big charities appropriate older people to their purposes and, and foster this notion that old people need to be helped over the road when very often uh, much better they ask older, older people how should the road be designed. So there is that. I think there's a lot of tensions in it, but given that this is a pensioners for Indy, uh, I, mean, I think a, a pressure group that aligns older people's issues, demands for rights, changes to services, etc., with Scottish independence would be quite key and rather different from uh, most of the other older people's voices that I've heard over the last five, ten years. In fact, I would go a bit further. I'd, I'd like to see much more in the way of participatory democracy through embedding things like citizens' assemblies at multiple layers of government and having those assemblies drawn from a representative sample of, of the entire population, if only so that we don't end up having the grey pressure group fighting against the, the young workers of the world pressure group and, and just exacerbating that, that cross-generational ageism we describe in the book by getting everyone in the same room and, and you know, seeing younger folk say, right, well, your, your present now is my future tomorrow. How can we both make this better? I think that's a, a good way of doing it. Why the title of the book is All of Our Futures. Yeah. A bit of a response to Mary's rant about healthcare. Disclaimer, I'm a retired GP, and uh, I just have to explain that screening programmes, we're lucky to have them for a start. I mean, when I first started in healthcare, there was barely any screening programmes at all. 
they're icing on the cake if you like. And they're based on age risk ratios. So, um, for instance, uh, cervical screening in Scotland starts from an earlier age than it does in England, um, or it used to anyway. That type of screening is universal for a given age group for very good reasons, because the condition doesn't occur very commonly outside of that age group. But as we've always done, um, we rely on um, people to come forward with um, symptoms that um, uh, are suspicious. Okay, you might argue that um, uh, we ought to be screening absolutely everybody. It's not a bottomless pit of money. We can't afford to do that. And I'd also like to defend non-face-to-face um, contact, which in the vast majority of cases um, is a, a, a triage consultation. Years and years ago, we were doing telephone triage because the demand was so high. You don't actually have to be face-to-face in the same room as a patient to be able to come to some conclusion about what level of risk they have in terms of having something dangerous. And it's even better when you can see them on a screen. You know, needs must. So I just, I just wanted to put in a bit of defence there. Things. One of the things that politicians do is that they actually uh, uh, they take older people for granted. The Conservatives in particular seem to be able to count on a, a certain percentage no matter what. Uh, and I think that anything that actually shakes that complacency amongst any kind of parties uh, would be very useful. Uh, decisions are uh, advised to us and, and passed down to us without any um, even the, the belief that there needs to be a better explanation. And I think that if we had uh, some kind of pressure group uh, influencing things at all the different levels, uh, uh, you know, similar to what Craig was actually talking about, then things would be really better. And we have to change this kind of perception that when we retire, that's the end. When in reality, for many of us, it should just be a new beginning. The expertise, even just represented by the people on the call today, there are just so many decisions that government uh, could benefit from. Uh, the problem is they are not going to ask. And you probably find that uh, older people charge less than Deloitte and PricewaterhouseCooper for their expertise. Well, that's one of the things I've kind of always thought about the Yes movement with all these individual groups around the country. But once the vote has gone our way, um, they should all turn into pressure groups. So you're quite right. I think it's a role for pensioners for independence to push this sort of thing for all being selfish, our age group, and for those obviously moving up to it. And I think a, a slant on that is a rhetoric I hear a fair bit in the Yes movement is, well, young people will do it all. It's their future. They'll sort it all out. But in the light of what we've been saying is, is actually a very distorted picture of reality. I mean, when I was still able to go to, you know, kind of meetings before COVID, I went to a lot of meetings around 2014. And, uh, and I would look at a meeting, everyone was over 50. I think also certainly Craig and I agree with this idea for the, if we can get everybody in the room and start to have these, maybe some kind of cross-generational conference that was aimed at raising some of these issues and, and trying to build bridges with other people in, in, in the independence movement would be a good way to, to look at doing it. And you weren't at that meeting, but uh, did you enjoy watching it? I did. I watched it. I watched it afterwards and um, I did enjoy it. I mean, I, I did wonder 
quite what it would be like, you know, a, a whole book about, <laughs> about an ageing population. Mm. And actually, I, I just find it really interesting. They're focusing on what in some ways you can see as a problem, broadening out to, well, it is how it is. It's how things are. So we do need to think how the best way of dealing with that. But then, yeah, there was, there was a lot of positive um, yeah. aspects to it, to it as well. I did pick up on the need for a well-being economy, but you know, like like you and I have done other programs when we've been talking to politicians about um, a well-being economy, and that's um, yeah. at least in Scotland. In Scotland, there's um, there's a lot of thought going into how to do that, both in yeah. you know local authority level, but also Scottish government level. Final plug to the book: you can get it from the Commonweal website. It's very readable, and it kind of mirrors the the topics as they went through them on the the discussion there so a, a really good look at what is uh, an interesting but complicated subject and I was left feeling quite positive as a result yeah. of the, the talk yeah. our older folk us our older folk are a resource you know and it's a success story that we've got an aging population and the, the challenge really is aging well the idea you don't have this long slow process yeah. of decline that deterioration you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll say well yeah. and healthy, and then just yeah. out like a light. Yeah. <laughs> I did enjoy listening to Bill Johnson speak. I haven't ever heard him yes. uh, speaking before. Craig's often been a, a guest on 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 our programs, but um, I haven't heard Bill speak before. And I, I just really, I just really appreciated how he talked about it, and he's got a slightly different take on things, I think, than um, mm. than maybe uh, you know Craig tends to have. And I thought yeah. they were a, a really good two people to have written that book together. You couldn't just have had somebody of Craig's age delivering that without having somebody of our yeah. age as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But I thought Bill's style was lovely. I really yeah. enjoyed listening to him, actually. It was yeah. very sort of reassuring to listen to. So so anyway, well done, guys. Really interesting book. And get it on the Commonwealth website. One thing that, that you know, maybe should, we should sort of say that Scotland's not out of, um, out of sync with other um, developed mm. nations but what adds to it from our point of view is that we've got room for a lot more people to live in Scotland and you know we we kind of need them to come really. Well that's the thing isn't it with Brexit closing the doors yeah um, that has cut us off from the one resource yeah. that we really need to import so um, yeah. but hopefully that is a temporary situation. That's it for this month we look forward to seeing yep. you again next month with another topic which hopefully is of, is of interest to people who are still in the process of making their mind up. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to the podcast edit of the Mibby's Eye Show, brought to you by Scottish Independence Podcasts. You're very welcome to subscribe to our podcast channels. And if you'd like to, you can follow us on Twitter too, at Scottish IndiePod. Drop us a tweet and let us know what you think of the show.